Censorship is often considered key to the survival of authoritarian regimes. In China, the increasing role of digital technology has presented a challenge to censors. But digital communication can conversely also make it easier for the state to track conversations, interests and calls for action. I'm James Evans here at the Fairbank Centre for Chinese Studies, and on today's Harvard on China podcast, we're talking to Professor Gary King, the director of Harvard's Institute for Quantitative Social Sciences. Professor King is the co-author of three groundbreaking studies into online state-sponsored censorship in China, or what Freedom House describes as the most elaborate system for internet control in the world. So, Professor King, welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. Thanks very much. In 2013, you published with Jennifer Pan, who's now at Stanford, and Margaret Roberts at UC San Diego, what you describe as the first large-scale experimental study of China's state-organized online censorship. Why did you decide to study censorship? Well, we didn't actually decide to study censorship. <laughs> what we were intending to study was the methods of automated text analysis in English. We had no intention of studying China, censorship, authoritarian regimes, information control, or anything like that. What we intended to do was to take the methods that had already existed and try to improve them. So what do these methods do and why are we trying to improve them? So let's think of social media. So social media is the largest increase in the expressive capacity of human beings pretty much in the history of the world. It enables one person to write something, and potentially anyway, millions and millions of other people can read it. What it doesn't enable anybody to do is to understand what millions of other people are saying. So we've been developing techniques that read in a way that a human being could not because they would get bored very fast, millions and millions of, of social media posts. We were doing it, however, mostly in English. And we thought, let's see whether we could improve the methods, push them until they break. That, would, that was our idea. And then if we saw how they broke, we could figure out how to improve them. Well, how do you do that? Well, we thought, let's try it in another language. So we got a database of social media posts in Chinese from a company called Crimson Hexagon, which is a local uh, social media analytics company that actually I founded. In fact, they use some of the methods that we developed here at Harvard, and they go around the world and they sell brand monitoring to companies. And so we got a database from Crimson Hexagon, and we tried our methods, and we found how they broke, and we found how to improve them. And then one day I said to Molly and Jen, hey, why don't you go back to the website from which these posts came, and just let's understand the context. As it happens, both of them spoke Chinese. And they came back to my office and they said, there's something wrong with these data. There's something wrong with the data from Crimson Hexagon because when we click on the posts, sometimes it goes back to the website, but sometimes it doesn't go anywhere. So I said, show me. And so we're clicking on the post and sometimes we see one and sometimes we see the other, sometimes it waits and we keep clicking. And then at some point we click and one of the posts, instead of the post coming up, a message that came up and it said, this post is being investigated. And we thought, well, who would investigate a social media post? And then of course we realized that we had the ability to download all Chinese language social media posts, or Crimson Hexagon did unbeknownst to them, that the Chinese people could not read because they were not allowed to, but, but we could. And so we thought, let's forget this paper about automated text analysis and, and go after this. And so then we went and downloaded millions and millions of posts. Um, and we had the entire corpus of censored posts that the Chinese people couldn't read. And, that, and then we reverse engineered what they were after. 
And when you started this process, did you have a hypothesis in mind for how you thought the data might turn out? And if so, did it change as the study went on? Yeah, it absolutely changed. <clears throat> um, our hypothesis was pretty much what everybody had previously thought because we thought the same thing. We thought the uh, sensors would take something down from the web if you criticize the leaders, their policies, or the state turns out to be completely and utterly wrong. They don't censor criticism. In fact, you can say the leaders of this town are all stealing money. Here's how much. These are the bank accounts that they have them uh, stored in. And by the way, they all have mistresses and here are their names and that won't be censored. But if you say, and let's go protest, and the protest is related to something that's happening on the ground, then that will be censored. In fact, if you say the leaders of this other town are doing such a great job, let's have a rally in their favor, that will also be censored. They don't care what you think of them, and they only care what you can do. It's less about criticism and more about calls to action or things that translate into the real world. That's right. They're not afraid of calling them names, but sticks and stones, uh, the, or the, in particular, the ability to move people. That's the thing that threatens the regime. Not the U.S., not Western powers, not military from other countries, but their own people. And if their own people are an alternative source of power, then they'll stop them. That's the issue. So one of the interesting points in this original study in 2013 is that you say that by doing this and showing that it's calls to action that they're censoring, in some ways you can deduce intent of the Chinese government, which is something as political scientists, we're always trying to figure out what does the Chinese government want? How could a study like this show us intent? Obviously, we don't know what's inside the heads of the people that run the, the censorship program, but we can infer intent and then if it is actually intent, then that implies that we should be able to see things ahead of time before anybody else can. And it turns out we can. When we would monitor a dissident who has shown the ability to uh, create collective action on the ground in the past, uh, something would go viral about that dissident according to the rules that we inferred from our early analyses. We would predict that all of those would be censored. And, and of course it would be, and, and we would found it would be censored. Then we can invert it and we can say, when there's censorship, we know that there's something on the ground happening. And we can predict and have predicted when three or four days ahead of time, before they pick up a dissident, before they sign a peace treaty, before a scandal breaks, we can actually see signals of it ahead of time. But the interesting thing is you cannot see the signals on the ground by seeing only a few posts being censored, by talking to only a few people. You can only see the signal by looking at massive numbers of these posts. And if you think about it, you asked me about intent. It's the intent of the central government. It's the intent of the leaders to impose this system on everybody. Um, if you see one post, as journalists will often pick up on, and they'll spin a big story about that, that may be right, but it might be completely wrong because if you're implementing a big program like this and censoring millions of posts, you're going to get it wrong a lot, right? But if you see it at scale, you get to see effectively what the rules were that they were imposing on all of these different outlets and, and social media sites. So a key point you raise in this study is one of the limitations that posts have to be written first before they're censored. Mm -hmm. And so it's very tricky to figure out to what degree self-censorship comes into play. 
But perhaps one way you can see that is whether there are changes in topic over time. So if posts about a certain topic get censored far more often, perhaps there are fewer later on. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you've seen in, in your research? Yes, we can also see some aspects of self-censorship by another thing that the Chinese government does. So in addition to taking posts that appear on the web, reading them and deciding whether to take them down, they also filter out some posts automatically. So if you write a, a social media post and it uses certain words, certain keywords, then the computers will catch those, put them into purgatory, and then the censors will read the posts in purgatory, and instead of deciding whether to take them down, they decide whether to put them up. So we would follow the Chinese people as the keywords in the filters would change. And of course, it's not hard to rewrite a sentence when the, the censors say you, you can't use this word. And so that particular mode of information control is almost completely ineffective. So people uh, modify their behavior over time very clearly and very quickly. Now, whether they don't say things at all, we don't get to see things that they don't say at all. In 2014, you took this study a step further and so you created your own social media site to reverse engineer the process. Uh, well, we didn't make the social media site available to the public because then we would have to be in the position of censors according to the Chinese law. And so we stopped there. What our point was, was we needed to find out the details of how the system worked. We needed to do good journalism. Now, journalism is a difficult thing in the best of situations because you have to ask people to step aside from their life and give you some time for what reason, you know? But in this case, the people that we really wanted to interview were censors. It was their job to, to not let information out, and yet we wanted to ask them questions. We actually did interview a number of censors, but how do you know what kind of information you're getting from them? What we really needed to do was change the incentives of the people we were talking to. Well, how are you gonna do that? We could offer them a million dollars? Well, that wasn't, that wasn't an option, right? I mean, there's, there's ways of changing people's incentives, but none of them were open to us. So what we did is we created, as you said, this social media site. The, the reason why we did this, because remember, we created a social media site. We bought a URL, we bought server space, we contracted with some of the companies that created the software that existing social media sites use so we could see the, the machine basically that we were trying to reverse engineer. In fact, we had the documentation to the machine um, so we could sort of see all the processes and procedures. And then if we had further questions, we just called customer service right, customer service of the company that made the software. And we asked them whatever questions we wanted. We would say, hey, how do you stay out of trouble with the Chinese government? And they would say, hey, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, they were good at their job. So it was their incentive to help us. So we just found the right people under the right circumstances, which is when you're creating a social media company. So that's what we did. So you found the, the niche, the niche. That's that right. You... And they gave us all the information. Um, we then understood the processes and procedures and routines and that's basically the standard operating procedures of how the whole system works. We learned about the filtering that I described a minute ago and we realized a problem with our first study. So a problem with our first study was we only saw the posts that appeared on the web and then they got taken down. But what if some posts got taken down before they were put up? In particular by a computer that would read the post as it was being written and not post it. So we thought, well, how could you figure that out? The only way of really figuring that out is to see the posts going in when someone intends to write something to see whether it appears. Well, how are you gonna do that? The only way to do that is to run an experiment where you post something 
So we then did that. So we ran a giant randomized experiment where we wrote 1,200 uh, social media posts in Chinese, of course, and uh, with many of our uh, Harvard undergraduates and many, many other volunteers. We wrote some of them about collective action events, some of them not about collective action events, some of them that were criticisms of the government, some of them that were supportive of the government. And then we posted these in random ways, according to a very specific protocol we devised. And then we went back to these posts from a website of computers around the world that we had developed for the first study in order to check each post to see whether it was still up. And then we saw what, what the censorship was of the posts going in rather than only the ones that appear online. This year you've come full circle in that you've published yet another paper following up on the previous two. You go a step further and say how the government is being more proactive in social media. Maybe you can explain well, what that. It wasn't really changing hypothesis. It was studying another procedure the Chinese government uses. So not only do they take information down, they actually put information up, fabricated information. It had long been rumored that there was something called a 50 cent party. It's just a name. There's no political parties in China, so it's not, it's not a political party. But the idea of the 50 cent party was that the Chinese government supposedly would pay people 50 cents or just a couple of pennies at, at U.S. to write, that is to fabricate social media posts, and then the government would post them in the name of ordinary people on the web. No one had any information, any real information about whether this was happening how it was happening, why it was happening, what was happening, what, what they were doing, how often they were doing it. So we figured out a, a way to do a study of this. And we basically reverse engineered how the whole system worked. And we discovered who was writing these posts, why they were writing it, when they were writing it, what their purpose was. We discovered that the Chinese government fabricates 450 million social media posts a year and posts them in the name of other people. How did that change your perception of the Censorship Bureau? Because obviously, in order to fabricate all these posts, it has to be a very well-oiled machine. Oh, it absolutely is, yeah. Um, they do, however, have a set of clear guidelines for how, how it works. So let me tell you just the, the finding that we had in this study, because it intersects with the original finding. So originally, we found that they don't censor criticism. They censor calls for collective action uh, when it's related to real collective action. So here, they're making up posts. So what everybody thought, all the academics, uh, the journalists, the activists, and we thought was that if they actually did this activity, that what they were doing is they would jump in and anybody that was criticizing the government, they would criticize the people that would criticize the government. Okay, that's what everybody thought. Um, in fact, if you're over about 40 and you grew up in the, in the United States, you may remember third grade spelling and there's a word called anti-disestablishmentarianism. So that's the longest English language word um, that a third grader can spell. Um, it turns out that word means against the people who are against the government. So we got to use that word in a paper for the first time. Um, so anyway, what everybody thought was it was anti-disestablishmentarianism. These posts were just arguing against the people who would argue against the government. However, that's false. We learned that's completely and utterly false. Essentially, none of the posts are about that. What the posts are, are cheerleading. They're posts like, I woke up this morning thinking of how important our martyrs were to the history of China. Or... It's a beautiful day today. And they would just post things like that. And you'd say, well, why the heck are they doing that? Right? Like, why are they, they just posting puff? So it turns out they don't do it in a consistent way. Most days there's nothing. 
and then occasionally there's giant bursts of what we think of as distraction, huge amounts of cheerleading that distract from things that they're concerned about. So it's also collective action and concern about collective action. And when, when they are concerned about this or when there is a real collective action event, they will flood the, the web with all of this irrelevant material, which makes it much more difficult to actually follow discussion of real collective action. You would think it was probably a very effective kind of strategy. So it's flooding the internet with bots almost. Exactly, although it's not bots. They're doing it all by hand. So we traced it to the people that were writing these, their names, their addresses, their, we have pictures of them, we know who they are, we know what they're doing. Um, turns out they're, they're not ordinary citizens being paid 50 cents, they're government employees who are just given a little bit of an extra job. So that's not what it is. This year, the Chinese state newspaper, The Global Times, uh, ran an op-ed basically admitting that your paper got it right in terms of the state apparatus. But you decided to write a response to this op-ed. So why do you think they wrote the op-ed in the first place? And why did you decide to respond to it? Well, just to be clear, we didn't write anything in the Global Times. We're writing an academic paper. We're focused on our academic work. We're trying to understand the Chinese government. (laughs) We're we're not responding to them like a government might. Um, However, we thought that it was important what they wrote because it it turned out to be completely consistent with with our work, that they would respond in exactly the way that they did. Also, to be clear, we didn't intend for them to respond. And in fact, they responded before our paper was published. So we we were sharing our paper privately, and a reporter actually somehow got a hold of our paper and sent an email and said, hey, I'm going to write an article about your paper. Um, could you answer some questions? In fact, I asked him at first, I said, hey, you know, we, we haven't published this paper. It's not, we haven't even submitted it for publication. In fact, we're not even finished with it. Could you please wait? And he said, no. Um, <laughs> you know, he has uh, competition and he doesn't want to be scooped. And so we, instead of arguing with him in the context of this paper about freedom of speech, we thought, well, okay, let's post the paper, which we did. But there were so many articles worldwide that the Chinese government responded. So we then put in our paper a discussion of this editorial and a translation of it and a contextualization of it so you can really understand what it was. So the Global Times is usually published in English and Chinese. Um, the articles that appeared in the, in the media about our paper, about 5,000 worldwide actually, were mostly not in Chinese. Some were, but mostly not in Chinese. When the Global Times published the editorial about our paper, they only published it in Chinese which is consistent with our argument that they're mostly concerned about their own people. They weren't trying to defend themselves against us. They didn't want to pick an argument with with us or the media. They wanted to explain to their people why they're doing this thing. And fortunately for us, they, as you said, they admitted to what they were doing for the first time, essentially, and to the veracity of our data sources and to our findings, which, you know, it's, it's quite frequent that social scientists get to interview members of governments or retired legislators or whatever it is. It's not often that you can inadvertently pose a question to a government and have the government sort of as a government respond. And so we sort of said, hey, did we get it right? And they sort of roughly said, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, they, they don't care about our academic work and we're not trying to get in the way of what they're, they're actually intending to do. We're just trying to study it. But we, we actually got confirmation of, of what we were doing. Do you think that this use of censorship and the Chinese government's use of social media provides a potential model for other authoritarian regimes who are also looking to censor their populations? 
Uh, absolutely. I, my guess is that different countries do it in different ways. Uh, pretty much every country in the world, including ours, it does some forms of, of censorship. And undoubtedly, every organization that communicates does some type of information control. And uh, so are they a model for other authoritarian regimes? Yes, there's at least rumors about them sharing information with the Iranians and some others. And, and we hope other scholars will go and look and see what, what other countries are doing and how they're doing it. And, and we can figure out whether there's correlations in the ways that they're implementing these procedures. Before you go, we have a quick fire round. It's called our Fairbank Five. And it's um, five short things about experiences in China. So the first question is your favorite Chinese food. I don't know about the, the a particular food, but, but my favorite thing about eating in China is that if you and I go out to dinner by ourselves or with 10 other people, we're going to have pretty much the same thing. But in China, the more people you go out with, the better the food is because you have a bigger, diverse array of food. So that's my favorite thing about eating in China. Uh, your favorite place in China? Oh, it's always the last one that I've been to. So um, uh, my last trip, I went to Beijing and Xi'an. I really like Xi'an. I think it's totally underrated. You should all go. <laughs> um, your favorite Chinese phrase or saying? I have tried to say Chinese words, often before audiences, and they only correct me. So I'm going to do better than that and say thank you very much for that question. Do you have another one? <laughs> <laughs> a book that you've read recently about China or about a related topic to your research that you would recommend? There are really good answers to this question, and they are, and uh, without insulting any of the people that have written these books, they were not the motivation for how we went and did these studies. Uh, so if I were to actually give you a book or a set of articles that motivated us, they would actually be methodological articles, articles about big data and things like that. So the, it's the wrong thing for your audience. I'm not going to give you the names of them, but that's actually where we started. And the thing that we came upon is several sources of information that hadn't been mined for this purpose before. Social media posts, uh, information we got about the 50 Cent Party was in a, a giant leaked archive that reporters had written about, but nobody had figured out how to analyze. Um, we did surveys of 50 Cent Party members and basically asked them whether they were fabricating posts, and we got them under very specific social science rules to say yes. And how do you do that? Well, it turns out there's a long history of social scientists asking highly sensitive questions, like about your detailed sexual behavior or your income or other types of information. So there was a lot of books and articles in those areas that motivated us a lot uh, when we saw there were new, so new forms of information. So quantitative social science is the way, if you're going to give a book no, recommendation, that's the way forward. It's not the way forward, but it's, but it's something that, that joining together with the folks that really understand China, I think we each have lots to bring to bear. And uh, I love how much I, I learned from, uh, from interacting with people that would be able to answer this question much better than me. Um, and our final quick fire question is a class that you took at college or have taught that changed your thinking about China or indeed social sciences? So I've never taken a class on China. I've never taught a class on China. I've taken uh, and taught classes on the kinds of methods that, that we're discussing. But the kinds of things that I found most useful are classes in political science. You know, introduction, like watching politicians, uh, the, the situation of authoritarian politicians and the situation of people that run companies and elected politicians 
are not altogether different in some ways. I mean, they, their moral status is different, um, but the job of most of these people is pretty much to stay in office, right? So if you're a member of the United States Congress, your first job has to be to stay in office because you're never gonna be able to accomplish anything else unless you can figure out how to do that. If you're running China, the first thing you gotta do is stay alive and make sure that you're gonna, you're gonna be in office. In both cases, paying attention to collective action has got to be really important, right? In, in an elective situation, if there's collective action against you in a, if you're running a company, if there's collective action that is a boycott against your product, that's a big deal. If, however, there are individuals that disagree with your policies or disagree with you as, as CEO or don't like your products, that's okay. But if they join together, there's power in numbers, and that can make a huge difference. So the, the commonalities across these things that come up in political science all the time, that was actually the most valuable kind of prior information. So a good pitch for political science and government. I think so. I, I don't know that you should major in it, but I think you should certainly take some courses in it. Absolutely. Well, Professor Gary King, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Okay, thanks very much. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. 